Welcome to Hometown Alaska. I'm your host this week, Justin Williams. I'm being joined by Blaze Bell of Star and Recover Alaska and Shana Cooper of the Alaska Native Justice Center, a subsidiary of Cook Inlet Tribal Council, to talk about mental health and suicide prevention and awareness. Blaze Bell and Shana Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today in Hometown Alaska. Um, Shana, we're here largely to talk about uh, mental health awareness and suicide prevention awareness. Um, can you tell the audience kind of about your professional background and kind of how you got into this field? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a non-combat Air Force veteran. So, you know, there's that 22 a day with veterans, 22 veterans a day commit suicide. Um, they think that number is higher. So it is something I'm really passionate about in that regard. I've also worked in domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking for the last four and a half years. So there's a lot of suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety that comes with that kind of work. I've done multiple crisis intervention and suicide prevention and intervention trainings, um, the longest of which was ASSIST, which is a 16-hour suicide intervention training over two days. So is ASSIST, is that something that's kind of available to the public or? It is. Yeah. So if you've ever been on Google looking for local events, you can, it will pull up a calendar and have like things over at Cuddy Park, things that are going on downtown. They'll also have things like suicide intervention and prevention trainings. Um, and you can also go to Cook and Let Tribal Council's website and see what trainings are available through them. When it comes to assist, there's also Safe Talk, which is a four-hour training, which might be more appropriate for general population and folks who aren't working directly with survivors of violent crime and things like that. Okay. And we're definitely going to circle back around that a little bit later on when we kind of discuss, like, you know, some some more, like, resources, right, that the, that the public can access. Um, okay, so that's really good. Miss Blaze Bell. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, you and I do a podcast together, right? Um, so we we talked a little bit about this to to some degree. Can you tell us a little bit about like just your professional background and kind of where you're at, where you work, and things like that? Yeah. Well, really, what started my you know interest in this whole topic was my going through a traumatic event and um, experiencing some some big trauma, which led me to healing eventually, but first kind of doing things that a lot of people do when they've been um, sexually assaulted or assaulted physically. Um, and, you know, so that led me to substance misuse, um, disordered eating, a lot of things that I thought I was alone in and very powerless in. Um, and later learned that they were like very normal responses to trauma. Uh, but I had very extreme PTSD for years and still do sometimes. It's kind of a thing that's so complex to deal with. But through my healing, through sobriety, um, I now am the chair for Victims for Justice who help violent crime survivors and um, I'm on the Council for Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. I work at Recover Alaska. And so I also volunteer with STAR quite a bit. And yeah, so I try to help in all those areas as much as I can from my perspective. Hmm. That's really awesome, Blaze. Thanks for sharing. It's really fun, like the three of us being in here because we intersect so heavily, or at least we have with the places where we either currently work or used to work. Um, and so that's me and Shana, we used to work together at CATC, uh, the Alaska Native Justice Center. And you're still there? 
I am. Yes. All right. See, there you go. <laughs> That's perfect. Um, so, you know, these things are not, they're extremely sensitive topics. We were discussing a little bit earlier, you know, like a lot of people don't like to talk about these things. We may not feel equipped to kind of talk about these things. Um, how would you, Shana, like kind of typically approach the topic to help someone who, who needs help? So I think it, the idea of suicide sounds so scary to people who have never experienced it or never been there. And it doesn't have to be that scary because the best approach with something like this is being direct and honest with somebody when you think they're going through something very hard or you notice a change in them. Um, the best approach approach is just to directly ask, are you suicidal? And it depends on your rapport with that person or how well you know them and things like that. Um, I recently had to ask one of my participants if they were feeling suicidal, but because of the amount of trauma they recently experienced, I did start by saying, are you thinking of hurting yourself? And she came out and said, no, I'm not feeling suicidal. So typically you want to directly ask, you don't want to say, are you thinking of hurting yourself? You want to say, are you feeling suicidal? And if she didn't outright say, I'm not feeling suicidal, I would have asked her that question as well. I just wanted to gingerly approach it a little bit before directly diving in with her because of how fragile of a state she's in right now. So really the best thing is just saying, are you suicidal right now? Are you feeling suicidal? Have you had thoughts of killing yourself recently? And, you know, according to the CDC, now this isn't for 2023, I believe. It's it's recent, maybe 2021. Um, but I think we have the third highest rates of suicide in here in Alaska, like nationwide. What do you think are the most prevalent progenitors of that? What are the reasons behind that? The biggest thing I think that causes it is the isolation we have here in Alaska um, with seasonal affective disorder, which can happen in summer and winter, especially up here. Having sunlight 20 plus hours a day mm. is also very difficult for our brains. It causes problems with our sleep patterns and things like that. So we have suicide year round up here. It's not, it is worse in winter, but it's also bad in summer because we do deal with SAD all year. Um, We also have the rural villages with very little resources. The only way a lot of these people can access resources is by coming into Anchorage or going to Fairbanks to seek treatment. They can make a phone call if they have service at that point in time. They can access internet resources if they have internet at that time. But these are things that Alaskans face that people in other parts of the country don't even have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And we also have colonization, which the the enmeshment of traditional indigenous culture with Western culture has caused a lot of problems, but especially with middle-aged Alaskan Native males, with the merging of these two cultures, it has kind of taken away a role for a lot of people in traditional villages. So they don't have that space where they feel like they're part of something or they're needed. And that can also increase those feelings of suicidal ideation. Um, this next question I want to address to both of you, because this is something that I feel we talk about a lot um, in our respective realms is this stigma of actually coming out and asking for help, reaching out for help. There's a lot of negativity around that. I was talking to uh, Tiffany Dahl about this, Recover Alaska. Um, I was like, why is it so hard for someone who's struggling and knows they're struggling to reach out for help? What are they concerned about? 
because I couldn't see, I couldn't see it. Right. But there is a giant stigma when it comes to mental health, when it comes to recovery, when it comes to, you know, suicide prevention awareness, where it's just like, I don't want to tell anyone. What are some of the reasons you think that stigma even exists? I know that it's incredibly challenging when you're going through some of these things to even understand that you're not the only one. Um, so I think that's part of it is that you, maybe you do feel isolated. Maybe you do feel like there's no one else suffering the way I am. And that's why I think it's great that there are some different communities, um, whether it's 12 step meetings or support groups or these different areas where you can go into a room full of people who all essentially have the same brain as you and are having similar struggles and you can find some community in that. But Um, When you don't have that, it can be really scary. And professionally, I mean, there are people that are dealing with extreme anxiety or depression or all of these different things, and they're totally mortified to tell their boss, you know, what's the response going to be? I think in some ways we've grown a lot. Um, I've done quite a few like wellness workshops at different corporations because now all of these businesses have this wellness budget where people are starting to realize, maybe we do need to pay attention to people's mental health if we want our employees to thrive and to stay here and um, what can we do and how can we help them. And so I I think in some ways that's new, but it really became such a focus through COVID as well. Um, So, you know, I'm lucky to work for Tiffany who is, you know, I can just tell her, I need a mental health day. I don't need to say, pretend like, oh, I'm so sick, you know, I mean, I just, <laughs> which I think a lot of us have done in the past. Um, if we're just really, really struggling emotionally, which could be so much worse than having a cold, um, yet it's like not socially acceptable to say that. Uh, so I hope that that trend continues to grow with people understanding that we need to have a holistic wellness and how can we support the people around us in that? Yeah. Anything you want to add? Yeah. Um, gosh, there's so many different ways you could go with this question. I agree with Blaze. I'm so lucky to work for an agency where I can outright say to my supervisor, I'm feeling suicidal or I'm depressed. I'm not doing okay. I need a mental health day. And he encourages me to take that personal time off. So I'm super lucky in that regard. But then I think of the industries we have here in Alaska. Um, we, I mean, Anchorage survives and thrives because of the military town. Right. In the military, if you report any kind of mental health struggles, you could potentially stop being allowed to do your job and eventually be forced out of the military. Um, The same with we have huge flight industry up here, pilots, people on the flight line and things like that. Recent stuff came out about FAA and veterans lying about their mental health to be able to be commercial pilots. Mm. And now those folks might all lose their jobs as well. We have the commercial fishing industry, we have the mining, any of the natural resources. I can't imagine that it's easy to go to your boss in that field and say, hey, I need a mental health day. Right. I don't know how seriously that would be taken. Um, but we are super lucky that things are getting better and progressing in the right direction. Yeah. You know, my dad is former military. He used to tell me all the time how great that experience was for him right and these days not so much and he and i are both are starting to experience why because of the mental toll that it really took on him as an individual and he kind of sees that with other people as well right um so i would imagine absolutely it is very difficult to just like 
talk to your supervisor and be like, you know, especially where they say, you know, it's okay. We're a family here. You can tell us anything. It's like, no, actually we, we have to be aware of these sort of stigmas and stuff like that. So we can actually be open instead of just say we're open and available. Right. Because we never know what someone's struggling with unless we approach them. You know, a lot of the time they're not approaching the people that they should be approaching. You know what I mean? Um, I also think that um, it's the nature of depression and suicidal ideation itself where you already feel like a burden. You feel like no one cares. So if you reach out, you're kind of like, is anyone actually going to care or do something? Because in your mind, you think they would be better off without me. Mm. And even if that is 100% factually not true, your brain is telling you that it's the truth. So getting past that barrier and just telling one person, for me, that was, that's the hardest part about it is yeah. being able to just tell that one person, like, I am feeling suicidal right now. Mm. Wow. That's definitely good information for us to, to talk about and to be aware of. Um, another thing I, I wanted to discuss are just the different demographics. When we talk about the suicide rates in Alaska, you know, sometimes we talk about not just what the general suicide rates are for like the state or for the city of, you know, Anchorage, Juneau, whatever. But we look at the particular rates for the, you know, LGBTQ community, the particular rates for, you know, sexual assault survivors or indigenous Alaskans or veterans like yourself. So do you think in your experience, these are different conversations we need to have with different demographics or, you know, should we kind of approach that with, you know, um, concerning the commonalities between each respective demographic? That's, yeah, that's yeah. a great question because I think both. Yeah. I think it's a different conversation with each group, but the basis is the same. It's all the same. Suicide prevention and intervention is the same no matter who you're speaking with. Right. But if I'm approaching a group of LGBTQ individuals to speak about this, they're likely going to be more open and supportive of each other and have that camaraderie and it's going to be more normal to speak about mental health struggles because it's kind of the outside world puts that pressure on the LGBTQ community and causes them, you know, sometimes to feel this way because of societal systemic oppression mm -hmm. versus with a military group. It's the things they're dealing with at work. Society holds them up on a pedestal. Right. They're not causing these feelings of suicidal ideation. And again, this is our own brains that do this. No one is making anyone feel suicidal necessarily, but mm -hmm. The underlying reason for feeling suicidal for a middle-aged indigenous man versus a veteran versus a queer trans youth is going to be different. But the way we speak to them about it is going to be the same. Mm. Um, well, I don't, I'm sure you're going to cover this later, but I just can't stop wanting to ask, um, what do you say? So, you know, you said earlier you know, you can just ask someone, are you thinking about hurting yourself? Um, are you feeling suicidal? And if they say yes, what's your response to that? And I know you're coming from a professional lens, but also what about if it's a friend of yours? Yeah. So for me, it's very easy in a professional capacity to talk about these things because I've been doing it for so long now. And I know that nothing I say is going to cause someone to kill themselves. Nothing I say is going to make someone more suicidal it's up to that person whether or not they follow through on killing themselves. What I say is not going to make things worse, but it could make things better. So I think that's important to remember is that you can't say the wrong thing. And by being that one person that reaches out and says, are you feeling suicidal right now? You see them and that might be the difference between them doing something to harm themselves or not. 
Um, and as in a professional capacity, so with that example of the person who I just had to ask, they were saying some things about like, I just wish this could all be over. They weren't being specific about their situation or they were just like, I wish it could be over. I wish this was done. I wish I could fast forward through this, which makes sense um, given what they're going through. But at the same time, I just was hearing these little red flags of like, well, how do you want this to be over? How do you mm. want this to fast forward? And so if someone has said to me in the past that they're feeling suicidal or that they might not be actively suicidal, but passively suicidal, I'll ask them, do you have a plan in place for how you plan to kill yourself? Mm. And it's it can be jarring for outsiders to have these kind of conversations or, you know, be confronted with this type of question. But for someone who is actually suicidal, they'll be like, well, no, I haven't, I haven't thought that far. Mm. Or they'll be like, yeah, I just keep thinking about X, Y, Z doing this to end my life. And the best thing you can do is make a safety plan with them until the next time you can connect. What can we do to help you stay alive until I talk to you tomorrow morning? What can we do to help you stay alive until we can get you to prop psych or on a call with 988 or whatever we need to do. And I think for most of us, you know, you work in this all the time. This is like very uncomfortable for me, this yeah. topic, because it just, it scares me, you know, it just makes yeah. me so nervous um, when I have friends that are experiencing those feelings and just feeling helpless. And what do I do? What do I say? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so I really appreciate your perspective and, I also know that I've had friends that have relied heavily on crisis lines and that they've gotten so much help from yeah. just having someone listen. And that's usually the route all goes. I'll just, I'll be on the phone. Maybe we're not even talking for half of it, but I'm just there, you know, and I, I never know what to say. So I don't say much, but yeah. I feel like just the presence can be something. Truly. You know? Yes, it is. Um, and so I've struggled with suicidal ideation more than once in my life. There was one point where I, I was ready. I had a letter written. I had a method in place. I was ready to go. And no one knew. Not a single person knew. And it's almost laughable when you're going through it because you're like, these people don't even realize. And it reinforces those thoughts in your head mm. where you're like, see, no one cares. No one realizes I'm suicidal, but you're also not doing anything to give them hints. You know right. exactly what to do to hide it. So it's interesting kind of dichotomy between those things. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because um, I think that's like you're an example of being able to move through that and get to a different space. Yeah, absolutely. I am quite hopeful that I will never get to that space again, even though I still experience depression. Right. I have a good support system. So finding that person that you mm. are able to make it over that that bridge of like, I need to tell someone I'm feeling this way that is super important. Mm. And that can be a crisis line, a best friend, a, you know, uh, what are they called? I want to like a pastor, but like a, a chaplain, a chaplain, um, yeah. any kind of religious professional. So yeah, anyone who would be helpful, your doctor. I, I know that Alaska has had issues with finding the right people, right? Filling in those gaps. Is there for, for healthcare professionals, and either one of you can answer this. What do healthcare professionals in Alaska specifically need to know? I think they need to know that it's okay to ask these questions. It's okay to be upfront and direct and ask if someone is feeling suicidal. 
It's also okay to ask if things are safe at home. If your partner is abusive, if your parent or family member is abusive, if you are going through a big loss, if they know I just went through this trauma, then a nurse or doctor has that role to step in and say, I know you're going through this very traumatic event. It's going to be financially, mentally, emotionally, physically a burden on you. Mm -hmm. Are you feeling suicidal at this point? Mm -hmm. Or if you are feeling suicidal because these are heavy things to deal with, here's who you can contact. Please reach out to us. Please do whatever you need to do to keep yourself alive. And Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry, I have a question. <laughs> I have a lot of questions today. Uh, so, you know, I work a lot with um, sexual assault survivors and just trauma survivors in general. And there can be a real fear about reporting something or telling the wrong person and then there's this fear of like, oh my gosh, are they going to call the cops? Maybe that's not the route I want to take. Am I going to get in trouble because maybe I had a part in this? Or, you know, there's, it can be really complex with sharing information. So in this type of situation, um, there might be people that are afraid to tell their doctor because their doctor is going to do X, Y, Z, you know, and I don't know that what, what the rules are around that, but is there safety in that? Or are there some areas that are better than others to share yes. confidentially? You know? That's a great question. Thank you so much for asking that. Um, so there's a difference between being actively suicidal and having passive or, you know, suicidal ideation. If someone tells me that they've been feeling suicidal, that's why I ask the follow-up question of like, okay, what's your plan? If they haven't thought of a plan, I'm not going to call the police or try to convince them to go to prof psych or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if they say, I have a loaded gun in my hand right now, I'm going to grab a coworker and have them call 911 right. while I keep that person on the phone. Or I'll text a coworker and let them know I'm in a room with so-and-so. They just said that they have a plan in place. I need you to contact law enforcement or medical professionals. Okay. So there is that difference. But if someone is actively suicidal, we need to intervene. Mm. Right. And so that might be scary, but I think most people who worry about reporting to a medical professional or whomever, a case manager, whoever it is, they aren't typically actively suicidal. They're having that passive ideation kind of moment where they need someone to intervene, but they don't need to be taken by police mm -hmm. or, you know, right. in a mental health inpatient facility. That's scary. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's a lot of fear around that. And especially for our BIPOC citizens, they've been mistreated repeatedly by all of our systems, especially our medical systems. Right. I don't blame them for not wanting to seek help. So it is hard to kind of ask for help when you're worried about what the repercussions are going to be. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you so much for asking about that. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Hometown Alaska on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Justin Williams. If you're just tuning in, I'm here with Shana Cooper of the Alaska Native Justice Center and Blaze Bell of Star and Recover Alaska, holding a discussion on mental health awareness and suicide prevention, how to approach the topic, deconstructing stigmas and seeking help, and opening up the table to addressing multiple demographics. We'll be back shortly. If you or someone you know is in need, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 to speak with someone who can help.
Welcome back to Hometown Alaska on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Justin Williams. If you're just tuning in, I'm here with Shana Cooper of the Alaska Native Justice Center and Blaze Bell of Star and Recover Alaska, holding a discussion on mental health awareness and suicide prevention. We will be discussing what healthcare professionals in Alaska need to know, what resources are available out there to address mental health concerns, and how to find the joy in the little things. What resources do we have here in Anchorage or in Alaska that maybe some people may not be aware about? Yeah, so nationwide there are multiple crisis lines. Um, there's 988, which can I believe at this point in time that is the Veterans Crisis Line and the Nationwide Crisis Line have merged into one. And when you call that number, I am quite certain that they it prompts you to say whether or not you're a veteran. Hmm. Um, so that is one thing that's very helpful, but. For me, as someone who's experienced suicidal ideation, yeah. I would never have reached out to a crisis line. Wow. And I only leaned on loved ones yeah. and my therapist. Those are the only people I reached out to. Here in Alaska, we have crisis lines as well. We have Star Crisis Line. Right. We have Awakes Crisis Line. And the people who are answering those calls are trained to work with people who are feeling suicidal, as well as calling any of the hospitals calling 911 and things like that. Mm -hmm. We have support groups um, here in town for things like grief and bereavement, because a lot of times those can be causes for people feeling suicidal. So it just depends on what people are looking for. But most often, I don't know how many people are reaching out to crisis lines. And I know a lot of veterans who have been burned, like kind of what Blaze was asking earlier, where if you call the veteran crisis line, oftentimes they send police out to your home, mm. even if you say you're not actively suicidal. Wow. I've heard things are getting better, but I don't have any evidence to support that. Mm. Well, and I'm going to second STARS crisis line, um, just because I have some people close to me who uh, were experiencing suicidal thoughts and really leaned on STARS crisis line and couldn't get through to some other ones that were more specific to what they were dealing with, but they were just so desperate to talk to anyone. Um, and STAR really showed up for them over and over again. And so, yeah, I think they're a really strong crisis line. Yeah. And I think reaching out to anyone, a crisis line, a friend, whoever, that shows that you don't actually want to end your life. Mm. You are reaching out to a lifeline. And I think as those of us responding on the other end, be it in a professional or personal capacity, pointing that out is also really helpful. Yeah. If you truly wanted to end your life, you wouldn't have called me today. Mm. You have fight left in you. And this phone call is proof of that. And for people who cannot afford therapy in the Anchorage area, there are providers that accept Medicaid. Mm -hmm. There are also multiple providers I can think of that have sliding scale fees. Mm -hmm. So Alaska Behavioral Health does a sliding scale and Anchorage Neighborhood Health Clinic also has sliding scale. Yes, so those are two places that are income-based where you should be able to seek therapy or counseling that fits your budget. Yeah. Well, and I also think for people that have access to it, I mean, with our phones and the internet, there is so much just on a national and worldwide level that we can tap into. Um, you know, over the pandemic, so many people went to different types of support groups virtually. And yeah. you can also call crisis lines in other states. I mean, uh, I heard from Star that they had people, especially during the pandemic, who couldn't get through to their line in California. So they found Alaska, you know. And yes. so, I mean, there is support out there. And uh, sometimes we just have to realize that, that you could get on Zoom and join a support group 
in Montana or some random place or just with people from all over the nation and get some of that connection, get some of that community back. Um, so I think looking into those options as well. And and uh, not only we were talking earlier about telehealth and doing um, counseling over the Internet, but there's also quite a few organizations who are starting to do it via text because oh, wow. we have a whole mm-hmm. world of youngsters out there that are not ready to get on the phone and aren't used to that. And they do all their communicating via text, via DMs. And so um, I think it's the Trevor Project, who is a big one, who has started That's to awesome. hire peer support. And um, it's all via text. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I was doing some statistics earlier, too, just like kind of doing like the research for this. And it's it's really just like you know, heartbreaking to see um, how much every particular age group is struggling with these sorts of things too. And so I think that's very important to know, like you actually don't even have to talk. You could just, you could just text. It doesn't have to be face to face. You could do video. Like these options are really, really important, you know? And um, so Blaze for, I mean, mental, when we talk about mental health, um, we can break that down into a bunch of different components, whereas mental health is kind of like the umbrella. So your particular realms of expertise, right, with recovery, with what you do uh, for people who have, you know, undergone sexual assault, for the recovery process, for the healing process, for those things, right? Like, how do you approach those things? Oh, boy. I mean, that's such a big question. It is. Honestly. Um, and just the healing process can be so complex. And uh, I feel like a lot of my experience is firsthand. You know, it wasn't me going to school to learn how to help people in this. It was me going through horrible things and finding my way and then finally getting to a place where I could go, okay, now I see the other people struggling. I have extreme empathy because I know exactly where they are right now because I've been there and let me just share what's helped me and maybe it'll help them. Maybe it won't, but there's definitely like, I have to share that. Um, so I'm very passionate about trying anything and everything to heal. And I will say it was really, really tough for me to heal while I was still um, experiencing addiction. And when I went through trauma, I didn't have any healthy coping skills. I didn't know where to turn. And so um, I did what a lot of people do and just tried to escape my feelings. And I had that thought, kind of what you were talking about earlier, where um, I'm sure there are a lot of red flags to people around me because my feeling was like, no, I don't want to die, but like, I really need to hit pause. Like, I just need to pause for a minute because this is way too much. I'm hurting so badly. I'm so afraid. I'm so lost. And like, I always had that hope that somehow, somewhere we'd get to the next stage, but I just couldn't handle the feelings I was having. It was too much. So, um, I, you know, went through bulimia, um, extreme substance misuse. And again, these are things nobody wants to talk about, but so many people experience and so many people have been abused, turn to these exact things to try to cope. And, uh, and it is a coping skill There's just not a healthy one. It's not sustainable if you want to be thriving. And so for me, you know, it wasn't until I was able to get sober and, you know, release the eating disorder and, it's been 12 years now that I've been in this kind of life of recovery. And that was the point though, where I could finally start actually 
trying all these healing tools. So for me, um, there's something called tapping. It's also called EFT, emotional freedom technique. I highly recommend Googling that. It's something that's really helped um, veterans too. It's really great for PTSD. And um, I won't try to describe it, but I ask you to please Google EFT tapping, watch some YouTube videos. That's helped me tremendously. Um, I do a lot of online courses. I love a good workbook. Um, and also if something stops working for me, I'm like, cool, let's try something new. Um, I meditate and sometimes that is like a moving meditation. It doesn't have to be sitting still like a Buddha. It can look a lot of different ways, but, um, just trying to, I see everything as an experiment. I'm like, okay, how are we going to experiment on our mind and body today? And what is that going to feel like? And, um, trying to make it more of a game and a science experiment instead of like something's wrong with me and I need fixing. And like, that's just so much pressure and it's so stressful. Um, I still deal with a lot of anxiety and, uh, but having all these little tools and understanding that, okay, I tried something new, like what the heck it didn't work the first time. I still feel bad, you know, and not mm. just giving up, but going, okay, that's why all these things are called a practice because you need to do it every day. You need to start with baby steps and build up new wires in your brain. Like we can rewire our brains and, you know, they got rewired with trauma and we get to rewire them with healing. And it's really powerful and it's really something that we have at our fingertips. Um, but it does take practice. And so. Can we talk about that for a second? You said, uh, the, first of all, practicing these things. Right. Putting them into practice, maybe not incessantly, like endlessly, but like as consistently as you need to, as you have capacity to. Um, and I think part of that plays into understanding what it is that you're dealing with. Right. So one of the statistics that I found was that 43 of 43% of all Alaskans, Alaskan adults, uh, suffer through anxiety and depression. Can we? kind of discuss maybe like the difference between those two things between anxiety and depression a lot of people don't really know the kind of the discerning terms yeah. definitions between those two things i'll just give my little personal understanding which is yeah. again not out of a textbook um yeah. because i definitely experience anxiety and uh you know for me that's like tightness. You, I can feel it in my body, tightness in my chest, sometimes tightness in my stomach, my shoulders. Like I need lots of massages. I, I wish um, I could get them. But you know, like I feel my shoulders are like up high a lot. It's this high strung um, and I start to worry and there's just repetitive worry and what if, what if, what if. Um, I can be functional. I can get a lot done, um, but it's all hard and it's yeah. just, I feel so wound like tightly wound and it's a bad feeling um there had been times in my life where i had said i think just offhand like oh i'm depressed and then i got postpartum depression after one of my kids was born and i'm like oh this That's is depression okay yeah. i was just sad or like a little bit down before i was miss you know using that term um and for me that experience of postpartum depression it didn't last long but it felt like eternity i felt mm. like i don't know how i'll ever get out of this and i was crying off and on all day and here i had a little baby that i was supposed to just be loving and snuggling with and i just felt like 
absolutely hopeless. Um, and that lifted, I don't know, with hormones. I don't know how all of that works, but um, that's my really only experience with that level. Um, but anxiety stuck around. Still got that one going on. So, yeah. yeah. But there's a lot of ways to manage. For sure. And I think the really important part about that is that for our audience listening, they may not have known what they were feeling. And now maybe they're thinking, holy cow, maybe I am actually dealing with this kind of anxiety or this kind of depression. And now I'm kind of equipped with the knowledge of what that is so that I know what steps to take, right? Yeah. And I will, one more thing about the anxiety. For me, it's so physical. Um, and just thinking of people that might not know, there was a point during COVID where I think, you know, thinking the world was ending just took me to the next level. And I was in a really bad space, but I thought, oh my gosh, like, I think I'm, I might be having a heart attack. Uh, I think something's wrong in my brain. I'm having, I was having all these physical sensations thinking either I'm about to die or my anxiety is really bad. And I went to a doctor and I'm like, please do every test you in the, you possibly have. And she was very nice and she did. And then she said, but why don't you also just take one of these anti-anxiety pills and just let me know what happens. And I'm like, okay, like I don't really want to, you know, I'm, I'm an addict. I don't do a lot of pills, but, but let's see. Mm-hmm. And I took one and every physical ailment I had was gone, like a hundred percent gone. And that was so helpful for me to know like, oh, I just have really bad anxiety. And it was manifesting in all these ways. And for me to know that, then when I start to get these little physical sensations, I get to go, okay, body, like we're just starting to get anxious. Let's let's work that out. We're okay. Let's take some deep breaths. Let's reset and recalibrate. So also I one time went to the emergency room because of my heart and they said, no, it you're just having a panic attack. Your heart is fine. And they said over 50% of people that come to the ER thinking they're having a heart attack, it's actually anxiety. Mm-hmm. So okay, <laughs> that's happening. <laughs> that's part of the reason why we need to reach out so we can understand what our ailments are, where they're coming from, and how to navigate and manage them, right? I think that's a, a huge part of the overall healing process. Um, I want to address this next question to the both of you because it's kind of a big thing that we don't have one specific answer to. Um, but, you know, we kind of talked about, you know, uh, Shana, we kind of talked about the the different demographics, right, of, you know, the, the, the different suicide rates for different demographics, right, and, you know, how to kind of approach that um, both individually and collectively um, for, you know, I think Alaskan Native men and indigenous Americans in general, they have the highest suicide rates in the entire nation. Um, and one thing that I'd also was, was talking to you about earlier too, um, black women, uh, you know, they'll suffer depression. They suffer depression twice the rate of white women. Um, and access to resources for mental health seems to be lower, which I think is very, very interesting. How do we approach that topic? How do we how do we heal from that? We kind of touched on that a little bit, but like when you have minorities, when you have BIPOC people who are going through the same issues as these people over here and they are not, and, and they are reaching out and they are not getting access to the res- the same resources. How do we, how do we have that discussion? How do we recover from it? How do we heal from it? 
I think conversations like this one are a great place to start because just bringing awareness to the fact that there are health disparities amongst BIPOC versus the general population, that their numbers are much higher for suicide, depression, anxiety, and they're not taken as seriously. Just bringing awareness to that is really important because, I mean, as women, our health issues are not taken as seriously as men's. Mm -hmm. A lot of times things are blamed on depression or anxiety that are actually serious health problems. So it's really difficult. Um, And then we look at maternal mortality rates for black women. In New York, they're six times higher than the average number. So I think bringing awareness is one thing that's really important. And as far as me and my role, I primarily work with indigenous survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault. Advocating on behalf of those people, this is so silly, but voting, I mean, Hmm. things like that, like supporting people in power who also recognize that these are issues who will bring light to it because I as an individual can help other individuals and vote or protest or sign a petition. Mm-hmm. But as, that's a, a kind of the end of what I can do. Right. So supporting people in power or having conversations like this, I think are the direction we need to head so we can make things better. And I do feel like things are getting better. It's just a very slow process. As I'm being enlightened and there's more questions than answers that I have. So I just really appreciate the questions you're asking and you know, all the work that you're doing. So thank you. Yeah. It's a conversation, like, like Shannon just said, this has to happen. I'm enlightened. Our audience is enlightened. And I just thank you guys so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Of course. That was Shana Cooper of Alaska Native Justice Center and Blaze Bell of Star and Recover Alaska holding a discussion on mental health awareness and suicide prevention. We'll have links and more info on the Hometown Alaska page at alaskapublic.org. Do you have any ideas for a show? Feel free to send us an email to hometown at alaskapublic.org. We'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Justin Williams. This is Hometown Alaska on Alaska Public Media. Coming up next, State of Art. If you or someone you know is in need, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988 to speak with someone who can help. From Alaska Public Media, this is State of Art. Welcome to State of Art, your weekly dose of Anchorage Arts and Culture. I'm Ammon Swenson. Coming up, we'll hear some music from singer-songwriter Ava Earl. She has a new album coming out later this week. But first, Anchorage Community Theater's production of Arsenic and Old Lace opened last weekend and runs through October 1st. I'm joined by director Mary Alice Larmy to find out more about the dark comedy classic. So it's um, your typical window closes, another door opens farce. Um, it's all about timing and... It's a totally a family-friendly show. I wouldn't bring anybody under 10 to it just because it's a really long, uh, about two and a half hours. But it's hijinks and silliness and um, a little bit of murder. <laughs> so it's it's fun, but there is some dark elements to it. Yeah, it gets a little tense a couple of times, but uh, it's always broken pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what's your relationship to Arsenic and Old Lace? Did you maybe see like a production back in the day or the movie that uh, from like the 40s with Cary Grant? Yeah. So 
It has a history in Anchorage, so I've it's been performed uh, several times over the decades because of that history. Uh, so I remember seeing it in high school when uh, Dave Block directed it at West. Um, I think that was like 20, uh, 2009, uh, maybe 2010. Um, and of course, I've seen the Cary Grant movie uh, and loved it, particularly not, you know, it's an 80 year old play. But this the end with uh, Mortimer, Mortimer saying I'm the son of a sea cook because um, my dad's side of the family is is kind of like the Brewsters in some ways, a little less murder, but kind of like that. And he's also adopted by his dad. So when that happens, it was just very uh, it seemed like home to me. <laughs> Less poison. Yeah, a little less poison. Just a smidge. Um, But you did mention that this is kind of commemorating, um, you know, a previous production. Could you talk about that? Yeah. So uh, Frank Brink, who was uh, the father of Anchorage Community Theater, was putting on a production of Arsenic and Old Lace in 1957. And he reached out to Boris Karloff, who originated the role of Jonathan on Broadway, um, and said, hey, you want to come up to Alaska? And... Uh, do this show with us, and he was decided to bring his wife up, and they he ran the entire production with with ACT, and donated all of his proceeds from the show back into the theater. Uh, said it was one of his favorite uh, theatrical experiences. So. That's so cool. Yeah. So every couple of decades, somebody puts it back on, and uh, there's always the the Karloff did this up here, and, and it was at West High School's auditorium too. So. So what do you think makes it such like a a lasting piece of theater? Like what gives it that longevity? Because I was reading it got written in like 39. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because it's set in September of 1941. um, And there's a lot of like talking about, you know, the war and everything. And that's right before uh, Pearl Harbor. So it's kind of interesting when you put it in that context. But um, gosh, it's, it's just a show about a family, a weird family. And everybody has like a crazy family member um, that's just they've got that one uncle it just happens that this family is made up of that one uncle <laughs> uh, and then the one sane person um, it's the the hijinks um, make it like the fact that it's not one of the farces a lot of farces kind of uh, delve into the more like sexual side of things or they're really violent uh, and this like there's a little bit of slapstick to it but it's not there's nothing grotesque um, and there's nothing like there's some innuendo, but it's very family friendly innuendo. Tasteful. So, yeah, it makes it it makes it uh, enjoyable for for the family and one of those that you can pass along to your kids really easily. So totally. I think just from like personal experience, this probably I mean, I had a lot of like minimal exposure to theater siblings, stuff like that, going to a decent amount of productions and stuff. But this one definitely stuck with me as a kid as being one of the less boring ones, I should say. Like yeah. Maybe. There's no time for you to like just sit there. Like there's a break every like three pages or so where you can be like, okay, I can breathe now. But it's it's joke on joke, um, pratfall on pratfall sort of thing. So yeah. So what's like uh, as director and you know you you were telling me before this you were like painting floor sets. But what's your favorite aspect of uh, putting this on? Whether it's just you know yeah getting down and finishing touches on the set or you know dealing with the actors and actresses. I really love 
the process. Um, I think my favorite part is um, once everybody's been cast and there's a little bit of uh, I sort of know you from seeing you in shows or I've done a show with you um, and you kind of get to all sit down together and start to build that ensemble and going through the table work, um, like figuring out who the characters are, figuring out what the beats of the scenes are. It's the like super nerdy, deep cut theater stuff, but it's um, it's so enjoyable to me just breaking apart the story and figuring out what's important. Um, and then then it's, you know, six weeks later, you're stressing about like, oh, my God, we're not quite there yet. And then suddenly you are there. Mm-hmm. You're ready to go. And that's like a magical moment of, oh, my gosh, I can almost cry because you guys actually landed this beat perfectly and the pacing is perfect and we're ready. Yeah, so. I mean, how important is it for a play like this, like something that's moving so quickly to dissect all those little bits and stuff? I don't think you can do it properly without without it. Um, because it is so tied up in um, pacing, you have to have the characters down beforehand so that you have the reactions in the right bit. Like, you have to have the right reaction at the right time. And if you don't have the the groundwork um already like in place it just it makes it impossible to do yeah like a joke if it's missed time could just not be a joke at all right and and because the jokes sometimes depend on the character like if if the character doesn't feel this way then it's not actually a joke it's just straight line and it's like so figuring out the character's uh feelings about everything is is so important well um that leads me to i mean tell me about the cast do you want to maybe um break down who some of the folks are that you've been working with yeah, so um, our aunties, uh, Martha and Abby, are Lucy McCabe Connors and then Denise Bishop Cotton. And I've worked with both of them before, uh, was so excited to have them audition. And the the way that they played off of each other in the audition was just fantastic. Um, and they've brought a lot of life to the characters. How, how important was casting the aunties? Oh, gosh. Uh, they, they are central to the play. Um, they have to be the right balance of clueless and sweet and kind and also you can believe that they're murdering all these old men capable of killing right them. yeah um and and they have to it they're not doing it out of um out of malice it's it's all based on on this like sense of oh these they're angels of death you know they're they're doing it because they're lonely old men so they have to be able to play murderous and sweet at the same time so it it was key to the show <laughs> And then, yeah, then there's the the series of brothers. Yes. Um, So you have the three brothers, Mortimer, Jonathan, and Teddy. Uh, Mortimer being the sane one, Jonathan being the homicidal one who looks like Boris Karloff, played by Boris Karloff uh, originally. And then you have Teddy, who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. So Teddy probably has the least uh, plot-heavy part of the play. He's mostly jokes, but, like, without him... The play doesn't also doesn't work because he's the one who's digging the locks, et cetera. But you have to have an actor who is okay with having a medium small part and also will commit fully to the bit. Uh, and I found that 100% in Stefan Maureen, who is one of my dear friends. Um, and I was like, oh, man, where am I going to put him in the show? I don't know. And then he showed up for the audition and just was goofy and silly and was willing to play him like a like a toddler almost and that was great um and then you know you just pick the biggest guy with the deepest voice for jonathan and that's what i got (laughs) and uh josh who is also just uh 
willing to to be silly. That was, I think, the biggest thing was uh, one of the exercises that I had everybody do in the audition was um, this like little bit of clown where you have to see like an object on the floor, desire it and then like try to take it away (laughs) and somebody stops you and then you have to react to that. And everybody who's in the cast was somebody who did something bizarre with that. Like if they if they weren't willing to kind of go outside of the norm and like make themselves look stupid, then they couldn't be in the show. I guess we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but I guess maybe for people who just have no idea about it, you know, what what's just something you'd want people to know before going in? Maybe to entice them in, I guess. It's a show that's set, you know, in the 40s and you're definitely going to get that flavor of of the 40s. It's not uh, updated by any means, and it's still got a lot of um, visceral connection to like what we have to deal with in our families every day. I don't know that there's some big meaning to this show aside from let's laugh. Um, but really, it, at the core, it is, a, it is a show about a family that like loves each other through really bizarre circumstances. Yeah. And I mean, is it... <sighs> Is it nice to do shows every now and then that aren't just like, here's this big, deep meaning that you're getting behind it rather than maybe let's just enjoy ourselves for a couple hours? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's there is so much importance to the drama and like get it, sitting in there and like talking about it and like talking about issues and making people feel and think and do all the things. But um, we also need time to like sit back and heal. And I think laughter, we all know laughter is the best medicine and, um, being able to just enjoy yourself for a couple hours and not have to think about all the bad things going on in the world of which there are too many, uh, is really, really important. Awesome. Well, anything else you'd want to add about the production or anything like that? Um, just how grateful I am to get to do this. Um, and to for the people that have helped make that happen, all my my designers have put in so much work um, and long nights. And yeah, I'm I'm super grateful. That was Mary Alice Larmy, director of Anchorage Community Theater's current production of Arsenic and Old Lace. That opened last weekend and runs through October 1st. Up next, let's wrap things up with some recent music from singer-songwriter Ava Earl. Her album titled Too Much comes out September 15th. Here's the title track.
And that's all for State of Art. I'm Ammon Swenson. That's our show today. Thanks for tuning in to Hometown Alaska, everybody. And thank you to Blaze Bell and Shana Cooper for joining me today to discuss mental health and suicide prevention and awareness. You can find us on the Hometown Alaska page at alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Ammon Swinson produces the show, and I'm your host, Justin Williams. We'll see you next time. Hometown Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and do not reflect the underwriters or KSKA. Hometown Alaska's theme song, Lead Dog, is by Kevin Barnett from Eagle River. Learn more about Hometown Alaska and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.